Hello and welcome to Beyond Business with Wärtsilä, a podcast series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to global challenges. I'm your host Atte Palomäki and on a monthly basis I'll be talking to an expert in their field about how we can work together to make a real difference. The idea behind each episode is to look beyond the scope of profit and margins and really to discover how businesses, thought leaders and experts can rally together and use their experience, intelligence, forethought and honesty to facilitate real change. The topic of our discussion today is GDP, or the gross domestic product. While it is the most commonly known and used metric to measure economic development of countries, lately it has been struggling to stay relevant. But what are the alternative metrics? How will they be measured and how can we be sure that they will reflect true development? And can business life play a role in redefining and shaping these new indicators to be more meaningful? To explore these questions and more, I'm joined by Professor Robert Constanza from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, who joins us from Canberra, and Dr. Ruther Hoekstra from Leiderdorp, the Netherlands. Ruther is the author of the thought-provoking book Replacing GDP by 2030 and coordinator of the Wise Transformation Initiative of the United Nations University. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation. All right, let's get started. So, Ruther, if I go with you first, why, in your opinion, is there an urgency to replace the GDP? Well, GDP is actually a pretty good measure if you want a measure of the economic development of a country. So it's a measure of the goods and services uh, that are provided by governments in the market. And I think the real problem arose after the Second World War when we started seeing this as a goal of society. So uh, basically, if a country grows fast, we think that's uh, good. And the government that, uh, you know, overlook that growth is a good government. And then if you look at the literature and even look within yourself, I think everybody realizes that the real goals of, of a, a human life and of society are actually very different. I usually make a distinction with three goals. Uh, there's the well-being. You know, are people happy on the planet at the moment? Are they meeting their basic needs? The second dimension is sustainability. You know, will future generations, will they be, um, you know, able to meet their well-being needs? And the third dimension is the equity dimension. You know, are people within a country? Is there a certain fairness in terms of distribution? And also on a global scale, you know, there are still huge disparities between the poorest and the richest nations of the world. And, you know, by focusing all the time on this GDP, we're really not focusing on the real goals of our society. And the real challenges lie, you know, in this field of sustainability, climate change, biodiversity, inequalities. And, and so I think the real problem in GDP is not necessarily what it's measuring, but what it has become to our society. So, Bob, you're of the opinion that GDP is, in fact, often a misused concept. What do you mean by this? I think it's similar to what uh, was just was just saying that GDP was never designed as a as a measure of societal progress, and so we have been misusing it for that purpose. As Simon Kuznets, who is one of the architects of GDP, warned, you know, from the very beginning, if I can quote him, he said, "The welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income, as defined by GDP. Goals for more growth should specify of what and for what." 
And so I think that's where we got misled. After World War II, you could argue that that was the primary uh, missing or, or uh, missing link. And we had to rebuild our capital infrastructure. We had to get economies going again. And, and it could be argued that GDP was very important to help win World War II mm. uh, because we had to understand how to produce all of those weapons and, and bombs and, and such. You know, it was an economic, it was full, full out economic warfare. But times have changed. And now the limiting factors are no longer uh, goods and services production. Uh, the limiting factors are natural capital and social capital. And our goals really should have been all along and should continue to be, you know, the, the well-being mm. of, of humans and the rest of nature and recognizing our interdependence uh, with the rest of nature, with our natural capital and social capital. And Rutger was mentioning, you know, um, three additional sub goals, if you will, you know, a sustainable scale. So we need sustainability. We need to stay within planetary boundaries. We need equitable and fair distribution of wealth and resources, both within the current generation, but also between current and future generations, between humans and other species. And we need efficient allocation of, of the resources that we do have, which means considering all of the things that contribute to our well-being. And, and that goes beyond the things that are traded in markets. And that's what GDP measures, only uh, the things that are traded in markets. And many of those things that are traded in markets are things we don't want more of. <laughs> we want less of, you know, we want less crime, we want less pollution, we want, we want less of many things that, that just add to GDP because all it's measuring is activity. How fast are the wheels spinning? And so I think we really need to rethink where we're going. And I think we'll get to it, but there are alternative measures that show that we're really headed in the wrong direction when we start including all of those things that contribute to well-being. Uh, you partially answered it already, but um, could you elaborate a bit on the tangible benefits of scrapping or devaluing GDP as a measure of progress? Well, I think it will help us to achieve our real goals, <laughs> which are sustainable well-being. The fact that we're so focused on just the marketed activity and, and, and part of that activity is really harmful leads us down the wrong path. You know, we, we do things that say, oh, we can't take care of the environment because that's going to hurt the economy as measured by GDP. In fact, the opposite is true. You know, if we hurt the environment, we are hurt, hurting our well-being and we're, we're using GDP as an excuse to continue to, to continue to do that. It's not good for it's not good for us in the long run. Or the short run, for that matter. Anything you'd like to add to that, Ruther? I think also one of the strange things about GDP is that by focusing on GDP, we're actually focusing on the system, right? So we're trying to make the system better. While actually, if we were more focused on the people, uh, the system should actually be adapted towards people's well-being. You know, we didn't create an economy for its own sake. Uh, an economy is supposed to serve the people and is also not supposed to be a short-term enterprise. And, and so I think just from a more philosophical perspective, I think we need to shift our attention away from this system. So making the system better, but actually making the lives of people better both now and in the future. I really hear that uh, you both feel strongly that you know GDP is misleading the policymakers. And as you've stated, that it's already been visible there for decades and might have some damaging consequences for the society. So what's really stopping us from changing it? Well, <laughs> can I can I take that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think we have become addicted to the current system in a very real, real sense. You know, it's there are all these positive reinforcements in many parts of the system. And change is, is always difficult. 
uh, you know, but it's this sort of addictive behavior that makes it difficult to, and, and pointing out the problems uh, to an addict is, is often, you know, counterproductive. It just makes them dig in harder and, and deny that there is a problem. And I think we, we run into that as well because, you know, GDP has obvious problems as we pointed out. But simply saying that it has obvious problems uh, often makes you know the 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 change process even even harder from this addiction point of view. So, what we really need is therapy. Um, how do how do we create the therapy to get to get over this addiction? And we've done some work actually in uh, in looking at what works at the individual scale to overcome addictions, and could we scale that up? And what works there? There is one therapy called motivational interviewing which does not confront the addict with their problems, but instead focuses on having a discussion of their life goals. You know, what do they want to achieve with their life? And once you've established that, then you could say, okay, is what you're doing now really helping to achieve those goals? And if not, maybe you want to change your behavior. The analogy at the societal level is, again, back to the, the shared goals. How can we change? How can we reestablish what the real goals of the economy and society are? And I think this idea that, you know, we're looking for sustainable well-being and building that consensus around that. And I think it is growing rapidly. You know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, one of which concerns economic growth. But I think the rest of them uh, are all very much in line with the the broader well-being agenda uh, have been agreed to by, you know, all UN countries. So there is a massive shift going on. And I think in the general population, too, people are beginning to realize that you know, this mindless pursuit of GDP is not really making them any happier. We can talk about that too, of the life satisfaction surveys that have been going on. People's life satisfaction is not, not improving, even though GDP is, is going up. So I think the key therapy for overcoming this addiction is to build this shared vision. And I think in, uh, in Rutgers' book, you could talk about this, and I agree very much. Uh, that's really the limiting factor. How do we build that consensus among all of the alternatives that have been proliferating because people realize there is a, a real problem. How do we build the consensus about what our shared goals are and how to measure progress toward mm. those broader goals? So, Ruther, uh, uh, yeah. could, could I just... <laughs> please, please. Yeah, I, I really love Bob's work also on this addiction. And I think it also raises another issue, which is a problem with economic thinking, and that it's, that it's so heavily institutionalized. So... Just imagine if you're an addict and four times a year, you're kind of tempted uh, again. And, and that's the case what's happening in, in terms of economic statistics that four times a year, there's a GDP figure. Then our newspapers are full of economic growth discussions all the time. So to a certain extent, uh, it's very difficult for an addict to you know, be weaned off the, the drugs, so to speak, if you're constantly being reminded of the drugs that you used to be addicted to. And that's why I think this consensus is so important that we need to get, you know, the alternative message out just as frequently. And that also means institutionalization. So not just agreeing on these topics, but also getting the message out into newspapers and into our institutions on a regular basis. But isn't one of the arguments of this continuous growth that with that growth only we are then able to provide the well-being to our people? So how, how do you counter that argument? 
that's one of the classic narratives, right? That basically we need to be perpetually growing uh, to become happier, to, to provide education, to provide health. Of, of course, it's true that if you look at 200 years uh, of development, economic growth did in fact make it possible to create social welfare systems, education systems, healthcare systems. But there is a certain limit to that development. And at some stage, actually, people are also uh, choosing for other ways of uh, creating their well-being. Well, one of the things I find most interesting is the number of hours that we've worked. If you look at you know, two centuries of work, for example, we used to be really used to working seven days a week. Then it went to six days. After the war, it became five days. And I think in a lot of Western countries, actually, uh, we are tending towards a four-day work week. And that is a clear pattern in history that actually when we do become richer, and we do actually at some stage start to choose well-being over more income. And it's been shown that it's not mandatory to have growth in conventional sense, growth of GDP anyway, in order to have improving well-being. So what we really want to improve is, is well-being that does not necessarily take more material production and consumption. It does in some cases and in some countries. And I think the situation in the world today is that some countries could use to have less material production and consumption. Other countries could use to have more, but it has to be of a certain kind as well, a kind that does not have the negative side effects of our current uh, modes of production on our natural and, and social capital. Peter Victor has done a really interesting uh, analysis of the Canadian economy uh, using a systems dynamics model. And he asked just this question, you know, would the, would the economy survive without growth? And his conclusion is, yes, it can. If you just shut off GDP, you know, and did nothing else, then yes, it would be a disaster. But if you make the appropriate policy changes and have a transition period, you could, you could achieve a, what Herman Daly has called a, a steady state economy uh, that provides a higher level of well-being, uh, you know, lower impact on the environment, um, and, and uh, you know, is, is really, I think, where we, where we should be headed. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that um, an economy or the, the global economy can grow in a material sense infinitely on a finite planet like the Earth. Uh, so that just doesn't compute in the long run. Uh, so the you know the sooner we realize that and make the transition to something that that really is aimed towards our real goals, you know again growth is not the goal or shouldn't be the goal. Growth and GDP is a characteristic of the system that we need to keep track of, but it's not it's not the end all and be all. So today GDP it's extremely well founded. It's universally applied, and uh, we are thus suffering of this addiction to it. But you know how to make change. And what kind of in indicators would there be that uh, policymakers would be willing to apply? Um, I could point out a couple. Uh, one is something called the Genuine Progress Indicator, uh, which was developed by Herman Daly and John Cobb back in 1989 and uh, has been applied in, in many countries. Uh, and what that does is start with personal consumption, which is a major component of GDP. So how much, how much people are actually consuming that contributes to their well-being, but then it, it weights that by the distribution of income, recognizing that equity is really important to well-being. And then it, it uh, adds a few things that are left out of GDP, like the value of household labor, the value of volunteer work, you know, things that are really um, contributing uh, to the well-being of society, but aren't marketed, so they're not counted. And then it subtracts a bunch of things that shouldn't be counted as positive, 
you know, the cost of crime, the cost of pollution, et cetera. And when you apply that indicator, you find that in many countries, and we've done a, a sort of synthesis at the global level uh, that shows that since about 1980 or so, even though GDP has continued to go up, GPI, genuine progress, has leveled off and, and declined slightly ever since that period because of growing inequality, growing environmental damage, et cetera. Uh, the state of Vermont in the US has adopted the GPI as one of their official state uh, statistics that they use for policy purposes, and they've written that into legislation. The state of Maryland also did that. Other states are, are thinking about it. Uh, so that's one that at least has had that level of, of uh, sort of political uh, uptake. But like Rutger is saying, I don't think that's the complete answer. Uh, that still doesn't, that still leaves out um, the positive contributions of natural capital and ecosystem services, which are huge. Uh, it leaves out the positive contributions of social capital, you know, people's uh, sense of community and how they, how they interact with other, other people. So I think there's still a, a ways to go to get at a, at a consensus indicator that, that really captures all of the things that we're, that we're, uh, that we're looking for. And Ruth, had anything to add to that from your side? Uh, yeah, this was one of the core uh, problems that I identified in the book, that we have actually, we have loads of alternatives. We have uh, hundreds even. But I think the good, the good thing is that if you kind of separate the important ones, I, I think maybe we have uh, 12 to 20 uh, really important ones. Um, probably not enough time to go through all of them, but... You know, if, if those major initiatives would actually come together and have the goal of really trying to get to some common ground and some harmonization, I think that would be of a great benefit. Uh, personally, I, I don't believe that there's a perfect indicator out there, just like GDP is not a perfect indicator of the economy. But I do actually think by actually, you know, putting our heads together, um, and trying to harmonize these these different perspectives, I do think we could get much closer to a, a global harmonized uh, system. So when you say we put our heads together, what type of professionals would we need in order to develop something like that that would contribute to a more balanced system? Well, as I, as I said, there is... Uh, I would say 10 uh, to 20 are really important ones. And interestingly, they're also very interdisciplinary. So some come from economics, some come from the natural sciences, some from so, uh, psychology even. Uh, so the first thing I think would that would be really important is that we stop approaching this just from the perspective of the economist and actually see mm -hmm. that, you know, the global problems that we're facing are not necessarily the problems that uh, economists are most knowledgeable about. So I do think it should be an interdisciplinary process. And second, there is already in these 10 to 20 initiatives, there is already so much data collection going on uh, that in fact, a lot of them already have global databases. So in terms of data, that's already there. And just getting together and just seeing the various perspectives that are out there, I think, would be uh, tremendously um, impactful. And, and personally, I think, you know, what would be an ideal outcome of that process is that 
you know, you could imagine that we have an indicator for well-being, uh, an indicator for sustainability for the future, uh, and an indicator for equity. Uh, you know, in, in the genuine progress indicator, then we actually add those three components into one indicator. I think that would be a debate, you know, whether you would want separate indicators for those three dimensions or whether you would want, want, would want one indicator. Uh, but, you know, those are the kind of things that you would then debate within uh, such a, a, a consortium. Yeah, I very, I very much agree with that. I think, I think that's the kind of consensus building that we need. And if you look back, you know, GDP has really only been around since, you know, the end, just the end of World War II, um, you know, with the, uh, the Bretton Woods conference uh, that, that occurred when the allies got together and said, you know, we, had, we need to create the post-World post War II, you know, economic agenda, you know, and they developed the World Bank and the IMF and they, and they instituted GDP as a primary measure of, of, um, of progress. So we need, you know, a new Bretton Woods. Uh, for a new situation, you know, we're we're at a crisis period. I think in the world, you know, at least as severe as as the, the post World War II period, and so uh, and that's the the kind of activity that that led to GDP in the first place was to bring together, you know, the the relevant actors at the time. Now the relevant actors, I think, are much broader, as Rutger is saying. We need we need the full spectrum of disciplines and stakeholders, uh, you know, to come together. But I think that's that's. Uh, that's certainly doable, and I think it's urgent that we do it. Yeah, interestingly, that's exactly what happened. In the 1930s, all the countries were measuring their GDP differently. So there was economic measurements in the 1930s, but just, you know, Scandinavia, the Netherlands, UK, US were doing it differently everywhere. And that's the case now with Beyond GDP. We are measuring it, but we're measuring it very different all over the world. And the difference is that after the, the war, this Bretton Woods process, the United Nations basically said, you know, let's stop with this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, separate uh, development of GDP. Let's create a global standard. And that's why we have a global standard for 200 countries. And such a process is just not uh, present in the, in the uh, beyond GDP sphere. We're making a parallel from that then to the corporate life. That's exactly what we are seeing now with the rise of ESG and uh, and companies really looking at uh, how they can add societal value in addition to the shareholder value. And today, you know that that is something that uh, there is a global standard lacking, and there are very very different ways to measure that, which is making it quite complicated. But at the same time we see that an increasing amount of companies are really taking a holistic view about this value they create and uh, and want perhaps to be also part of redefining and shaping the GDP replacing indicators. So do you think that uh, corporate life would have a role to play here in support for the governments and countries? Absolutely. Yeah. And like you say, I think there are many companies that are that are beginning to, to see these issues much more broadly. There's the whole B corporation movement. Uh, that you probably heard of, you know, where, where corporations are seeing themselves back to the original purpose of corporations, which was to provide benefits in our poor society, um, not just to make, you know, financial profits. And so I think indicators that that we uh, would come to consensus on would be ones that would be applicable at multiple scales, not just the national scale, not just the, uh, or the global scale, but also down at the scale of businesses, at the scale of communities, uh, et cetera. I think we want essentially the same things at all of those scales. 
Um, one comment about the, you know, do we need an aggregate indicator or do we need a whole dashboard of, of you know, uh, of indicators? Um, I don't think that's an either or question uh, as well. Uh, you know, when you're you're driving a car or, you know, flying a plane, you need the dashboard. You need to know what all the indicators are, but you also need to know where you're going. Uh, and so we need to put those, those together and say, are we making progress you know, toward toward our goal? And again, that comes back to um, the building this shared shared consensus about what our ultimate goals are for the economy and society. So, Ruth, how about uh, your, your view? How can corporates focus on going forward and helping create sustainable societies? Yeah, you know, apart from the measurement and harmonization, which I think is really important, and there is a couple of initiatives in the business community to start harmonizing these ESG measures, But I think more broadly, I think companies play a really important role in the narrative which is told in society. And, you know, starting from the 1970s, 80s, um, because of economic thinkings uh, such as uh, from Milton Friedman, the role of the corporation was very much defined as uh, being there for the, the shareholders. So the role of a CEO and of a company was basically to provide as much value to the shareholders as possible. And when CEOs started to echo that goal and to really um, form their companies according to those goals, that had a very large impact, I think, on society. And I think the great thing about this day and age is that more and more CEOs are are actually echoing that the goal of a company is not just to create shareholder value, but also to look at the other stakeholders that they're servicing uh, in their uh, servicing with their products and, and goods. And I, I think that's really important. Uh, you know, the more CEOs say that, the more that also goes to the employees and to the general population. And I'm kind of hopeful that Perhaps uh, later this year at the COP, which is the climate uh, agreement summit, I do think there'll be actually a very different tone, hopefully, from companies this time. Uh, in the past, climate conferences have been a bit, a little bit like governments want to, or some governments want to make progress, and uh, companies are are sometimes seeing the difficulties in that. And hopefully, actually, we can get to a situation where uh, governments and companies are sharing this narrative that climate change is a very urgent problem to tackle. Maybe I could add one more thing, too, is that the business community is not monolithic. And I think there are there is a certain segment of the business community that's really that's really providing, you know, misinformation and, and trying to, to uh, you know, and are stuck and addicted to the, to the current system very, very much more than the rest. Making a change overnight, I assume that it is quite complicated for many. Sometimes I wonder whether we're in kind of a, a Kodak <laughs> period. <laughs> you know, Kodak thought they could ride out the digital camera um, <laughs> uh, era. And I sometimes believe that companies are still kind of like, well, yeah, this sustainability, is it something? And, and should we be involved in it? And, it, you know, it's a greenwashing and those kind of things. You know, renewables are drop. The price of renewables is dropping at a rapid speed. Electrical vehicles will be cheaper than uh, ICE cars in two to f- three years. Uh, and I follow companies like Tesla and those kind of things uh, a lot as well. And I really believe there's going to be a technological disruption in the next uh, five to ten years. 
similar to the digital revolution in, in uh, photography. And so to a certain extent, even things like greenwashing, I really think, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. You know, you can have your greenwashing for the next two or three years. And after that, you'll be a fossil. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm kind of bullish on this uh, sustainability. It used to be in the past because sustainable technologies were expensive. You know, you could always make the argument you know, should we move in from an ethical perspective? But I actually think the next five to 10 years are going to be much different. And basically, every, anybody that doesn't follow this pattern is going to be the Kodak of their era. Yeah, that's definitely a risk out there. And companies need to be very mindful of where they now invest for the future. Well, my final question to both of you is really, how do we now convince the corporations, governments and countries to make this switch? Or will that just remain a pie in the sky? Well, I'm doing my best to convince the UN that we really need some harmonization in terms of measurements, but, but it also goes more broadly towards uh, a narrative and institutionalization. I think we, you know, measurements doesn't change the world. It's the narratives and stories that we tell um, ourselves and our children. Uh, and I think that's the real narrative. We need to change the narrative of society towards not being a narrative of economic growth uh, and income growth, but a, a narrative of well-being, sustainability, and equity. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. And this gets back to the, my, my comments before about how to, the therapy that we need to overcome this addiction is, is really to fo refocus on the shared vision. What kind of world do we, do we want? There is a group called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance uh, that's, that's been formed. And that tries to integrate all of these, these different uh, institutions, individuals uh, that are all headed in the same direction around these shared goals. And there's a government uh, component to that uh, that was formed by uh, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the Scottish uh, First Minister, that includes uh, Scotland, New Zealand, Iceland, Wales, and I think Finland as well, called the Wellbeing Economy Governments. And the idea there is, well, here are a, a lead group you know, a, a vanguard group of governments that have said, our goal, you know, is not just to uh, maximize GDP. Our goal is really to maximize well-being. And to the extent that GDP and the activities it measures contributes to that, great. To the extent that it doesn't, we don't, you know, it, it's really not our primary, uh, our primary goal any longer. Well-being is our, our primary goal. So I think as that group of governments grows, as that alliance grows, Uh, I think we uh, we will reach a, a tipping point uh, at some point where that's that becomes the dominant uh, uh, way of thinking about it, you know. And the uh, the old school uh, businesses and economists will say, "Oh yes, we've always thought that, haven't we?" <laughs> that's quite fascinating, really. And as you said, GDP was created at a time of crisis. Now, perhaps with the pandemic, hopefully soon behind us, we are able to take this leap of faith and create something completely new and, and utilize then the crisis for that. And this brings us to the end of today's episode. So I'm very, very happy that I had the chance to have you both here. And it's been really fascinating and deeply engaging to discuss with you here today. So thank you so much, both gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Please subscribe to our podcast on your platform and stay tuned for more fascinating interviews and discussions in the near future. I've been your host, Atte Palomäki, and today we went beyond business.